Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. On December 6th of 2020, astronomers awaited the return of Hayabusa 2. Okay, that's a toaster-sized capsule that was launched by the Japanese Space Agency. So it was a small capsule that was launched by the Japanese Space Agency. And if you remember the news, they launched this small probe to land on the asteroid Yugu. Now, their plan was to land on it, take some samples, send them back for the 60,000 mile journey back to Earth. And on board what they had was five grams of dirt, five grams of material, rock, from this asteroid Yugu. They were hoping to see what they call chondrules. Now, what are chondrules? Chondrules are these small seed-like rocks that measure up to just a few millimeters across that are embedded inside of the larger rocks. Basically, think of them just like this, rocks inside of a rock. That's all they are. Rocks embedded inside of other larger rocks known as chondrites. And here's why they are so important to secular scientists. Their thought is that these rocks form shortly after the birth of our solar system and that the majority of the roughly 60,000 meteorites that humans have discovered are chondrites. And so they figured to themselves, this is their thinking, they figured to themselves, if they can understand how these chondrites formed, then they can unlock how our solar system was formed. Leading some to say that in their understanding of how planets came to be, there may be nothing as more important as the mystery of the chondral. But the secret has eluded astronomers. They can't figure it out. They can't. There's no consensus for how these objects were formed. And the joke, and it's not very funny, but the joke that they use, the joke that goes around in these little circles are that the theories about the chondral formation are as many as the chondral scientists themselves. And it frustrates them to the nth degree. Now this man, famous planetary scientist John Wood, probably not a name that means much to most of us, but he stunned these little space geeks. He, he stunned these science nerds at the audience at the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference because in his speech, he appeared to admit frustrated defeat. He admitted defeat in trying to understand the origin of these rocks when he said this, we still don't understand what the meteorites are even telling us. And sometimes I wonder if we ever will. And then a few years later, he quit science cold turkey. I like this part. He just quit science cold turkey, turned his attention to oil painting and spending time with his wife. I love it. And then he said this. This is his closing words to anyone daring to follow in his footsteps and build rockets and looking for extraterrestrials and trying to figure out where life came from. He said, I wish them good luck. 
This is Dr. Fred Chesla, a planetary scientist from the University of Chicago. He admitted this. He said, quote, we can build a story about how planets are formed. We can build a story. But it's obvious that there's a piece of the story that we're missing. But with all due respect to him and all these men, it's not missing, is it? It's not missing. It's found in Genesis chapter 1. I also have to admit I'm stunned by the number of men who I have read who do not believe in a literal six-day creation. It's amazing. And I'm not even talking the space geeks. I'm not even talking the scientists right now. It's amazing. I'm talking Christians, men who proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Augustine, Aquinas, Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, Donald Barnhouse, Francis Schaeffer, just to name a few. Men who have claimed the name of Christ, who have given into this idea that the earth is millions or billions of years old. And most often, the approach is to attempt to put a gap between verse 1 and verse 2 in Genesis 1. A gap that was never intended to be there by God. Because as I mentioned to you last week, the Hebrew construction of verses 1 and 2 do not allow for it. It doesn't. And so therefore, very few Hebrew scholars hold to it. Because if you can understand the Hebrew grammar, you can see it as plain as day. That verse 2 is a description of verse 1. Not a sequence of events, not a sequence of events that came after a gap in time. In fact, if you were reading this in Hebrew, you'd see it that it's as if Moses, under the direction of God, was writing the Hebrew in such a way to point out that there was no way there could be a gap in time between these verses. So what I want you to understand this morning is a very simple, basic point. It's going to seem simple, but it's actually profound. Verses 1 through 5 of Genesis are day one of creation. Our day one of creation. Let's read the first two verses and then let me explain where people take this. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 1, day one of creation. Verse 2, still day one of creation. Still day one of creation. But because people want to believe in an earth that is billions of years instead of thousands, people look at the word darkness in verse 2. And instead of seeing this as just as it is in context, a reference to the fact that light had not been given to the earth yet by God, people look at it and say that sin must have been present. There must have been sin in this world already at this point. That this is a spiritual darkness and that Satan must have rebelled already. Satan must have fallen into sin. That's the thinking. And so what God did is flood the earth with a great catastrophe, meaning in their understanding, verse one of Genesis is God creating the earth millions or billions of years ago. And then God created this perfect earth and Satan was the ruler of this earth. And some even go on to speculate that Satan ruled over a race of men who had no souls. It gets a little weird. And then when Satan rebelled, sin entered into the universe and God brought judgment in the form of a flood. 
This is what they believe the water reference is in reference to in verse 2. And there was, they say, a global ice age. Now, there was an ice age. We don't deny that, but they put it there. Where the light and heat from the sun were removed and the plant and animal and human fossils on the earth that we find all, they say, date back from this flood. This puts death before the fall of Adam. And if you're tracking with the biblical gospel, that's a problem. That's a problem. It undermines the very gospel of Jesus Christ. It is at odds with the words of Christ himself in the Gospels when he said in Mark chapter 10, but from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. And so because they understand that this is putting death before the fall of Adam, there has developed a more recent theory. Give man more time, we come up with more ideas. A more recent theory, a new type of gap theory is coming onto the scene in the church that puts a soft gap, if you will, between verses 2 and 3 in Genesis, making creation into long ages or long periods of time where God created the earth and then let it sit in darkness for a long time. Instead of what it was, exactly as God described it with words, a literal six-day creation by God, by the Creator. The original gap theory sees verse 2 in the text as the earth becoming formless and void. And then the six days of creation end up being a recreation of this fallen world. Now the gap theory got underway with this man, Thomas Chalmers. He was a very popular preacher back in the day in Scotland. In 1804, as a very, very young preacher, that's always dangerous, a young preacher, seven years before he became an evangelical, I to tell you something, he shocked his congregation by telling them that millions of years was compatible with the scriptures. And he admitted, he admitted his motivation was to find a place in the Bible that fits millions of years. And over time, he began to argue for the gap theory. And he persuaded a lot of Christians, because I got to tell you guys something, Christians are gullible. Christians are gullible. And then a man that I admire very much made a big mistake, C.I. Schofield. He put the gap theory, and I have a Schofield reference Bible, right there. I admit it. Yep, right there. I love that guy, but he made a mistake. He put the gap theory in the footnotes of the Schofield Reference Bible in 1909. And for many Christians, it became cemented as part of the accepted faith. Can I just remind you guys of some things? Can I remind you that the Bible was not created with verse numbers? Can I remind you of that? The first English Bible to use chapters and verses was the Geneva Bible, first published in 1560. And without those numbers, I really seriously doubt that anyone would have ever thought of putting a gap in between verses 1 and 2. And let me ask this. How do you think that the men and women of Israel, first looking at the words of Genesis, the words in, of Moses in Genesis, would have understood this text? Would they put a gap and say, yes, Moses, we know that God had you record this, but there's a gap. You got it wrong, Moses. There's a gap. Or what God really meant is each day was a period of time that lasted over ages of time. 
I can guarantee you that any Hebrew man reading this text would have seen it as a six-day creation by their God. Because they can see that verses 1 through 3 in the Hebrew, in Genesis 1, they're one sentence. They're one really long sentence. Verse 1, dependent clause. Verse 2, dependent clause. Verse 3, main clause. So let's ask this question. Where do the angels fit in? Where do the angels fit in? Don't you always kind of wonder that? I do. Well, let's read Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Everything in the heavens and earth created by God in six days, six days. Verse four and verse seven of Job 38 suggest that the angels were present when God laid the foundations of the earth. So we're talking the beginning of creation, the beginning of creation, probably, probably day one. Remember that this is the Lord speaking to Job and verse four of Job 38 says this. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then verse seven, read it with me. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, who's that angels, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Angels are spirit beings created to dwell where God dwells, but also created, according to Hebrews 1.14, to minister to who? Us. To minister to us. Created good, but some rebelled. Parents, you know how that goes. But when did they rebel? When did they rebel? That's the question. When did they fall? Do we need to put a gap in time in Genesis in order to make that happen? Well, it wasn't possible that it happened before day six of creation. Why? Well, read Genesis 1.31 with me. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Everything was good. Everything was very good. God was pleased. The angels could not have fallen before this. But is there enough time between Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3 with the temptation of Eve? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because first, angels are spirit beings. They live in the spiritual realm. And we do not know how this interacts with the time that God has created for us. But even if we assume that they're on that same timeline as us, one week, one week would be more than enough time. I mean, why not? Why not? Why would it even take more than a day for an angel with intelligence that is beyond our own to look at the situation and for pride to swell up? Why would it take long for a rebellion to kick in? It doesn't take very long for a mob to start. Certainly doesn't. Even think of the lynch mob at the trial of Jesus in Jerusalem. Boy, the people turned on him pretty fast, didn't they? There's no need to put millions of years in Genesis 1 to allow for a long, drawn-out rebellion against God. And so this is why I keep telling you, and I will tell you again, that verses 1 and 2 both are part of describing day 1 of God's creation. Think of it this way. If I 
open up a Microsoft Word document. Everybody knows what that is, right? Microsoft Word. When I use Microsoft Word, I open up a Microsoft Office document and I create a brand new document. The screen is blank. Nothing is on it because it's a new document. It's brand new. But if I spend all day typing on that document, and then at the end of the day, I don't like what I got, and I delete that document, well, the screen is also still blank, isn't it? It's still blank. You see, up until the 1800s, Christians just looked at the Word of God at face value, and they looked at Genesis 1, and they said, God opened up a new document. And in verse 1, he opened the document, and he began to start to type filling in the details in verse 2. But then once the unregenerate men of a lost world started claiming that the earth was much older, Christians now began to look at this, and they looked at these two verses very differently, now saying that in verse 1, God opened a new document, and he wrote, and he wrote, and he wrote volumes. He wrote, 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 kept writing, but then he didn't like what he had, so he deleted it all. And then in verse 2, he started again. That the earth was ruined and desolate like a bad churn paper. And so God started over. So God started over. I don't think that's faith. I don't think that's faith. And that's not looking for the intended meaning of the author. Verse 2 continues from verse 1, just simply describing the condition of the created things mentioned in verse 1. The earth, God had not filled it yet. He had not yet filled the earth. He had not yet formed the earth. He had not yet written in all the chapters of the book because he started with a blank document. The earth was without form. It was empty. It was just simply meaning there was work to be done yet on it. The land was yet to be separated from the water. Darkness was on the face of the deep. No light yet. That's the context in verse 3 that it's about to show us yet. Darkness. People read into it here thinking that it means symbolically that evil was in the world. They, they assume that. That's an assumption that's made. That sin had already entered into the world and that chaos was now reigning. So God had to step in and recreate it all. But there's absolutely nothing in verse 2 that says any evil was present. Find me anywhere where it says it was. But instead, what does it say? The text actually tells us that the Spirit of God was present. Not evil. It's interesting. Darkness, just in context, meaning God had not created light yet. Deep is a common word for oceans or the sea. Take a look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5. It says, For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water. Notice that wording, standing out of water and in the water. See, God made the earth with a lot of water. And that's pretty unique in all of creation. And back in Genesis, we read again that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, at this stage of the creation, the earth was dark. It was dark, empty. But God, the Spirit, was there hovering over it. Just as a potter takes a lump of clay and places it upon his wheel so he can make it whatever he wants, this is what God did with the earth. First he spoke it into existence, then he molded it into something beautiful. There's something here in the Hebrew that I saw this week that I need to mention. It doesn't preach well, but it's glorious, and so I'm going to talk about it. 
Consider that the Hebrew word for spirit also means breath. God's creative breath hovered over the waters. Now, when God's creative breath came forth, it came forth as speech. It came forth as his word, which is told to us in Psalm 33, verse 6, where it makes this beautiful connection. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. And so what I'm telling you is the spirit of God is to his word as breath is to our speech. See, verse 2 in Genesis is just describing the earth before God prepared it for us. And verse 2 describes the earth as it came from the hands of the creator when God commanded the light to shine forth, which he did in verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Astronaut Al Warden, he died not too long ago in 2020. But in 1971, he was the command module pilot of the Apollo 15 moon mission. And he had the strange honor at the time of being the most isolated human being in history. Why? Well, because during his orbits of the moon, his teammates were over 2,000 miles away on the lunar surface. That's lonely. He's all alone, all by himself, up in this little space capsule. And Warden got a new perspective on creation that only a handful of human beings will ever have. And Warden said this, I got to look at the universe out there with a very different perspective, a very different way that anyone had before. What I found was that the number of stars was just so immense in fact, I couldn't even pick out individual stars. It was like a sheet of light. Can you imagine? He said, I found that fascinating because it changed my idea about how we think of the universe. There are billions of stars, he said. The Milky Way galaxy that we're in contains billions of stars, not just a few, billions. And there's billions of galaxies out there. So he asked this, what does that tell you about the universe that tells you we just don't think big enough. And then he said this, you want to feel insignificant in life? Go behind the moon sometime. That'll make you feel like that you're nothing. See, I don't think we appreciate these words in Genesis 1. I don't think we appreciate them enough because I don't think we as Christians fully understand the beautiful gift of creation that God has given to us. I don't think we get it. I don't think we fully understand just how big creation is, that our loving God did it, first of all, for his glory, but also to provide a home for us. His grace and his love are seen in creation because without him, it would be nothing. And there's a key teaching here that darkness is not specifically in Genesis an act of creation as much as it is the absence of light. Now, in verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. That simple. In Genesis 1, there is no record of God speaking in creation until now. Let there be light, he said. Pay attention to the wording very carefully, because it's not that God actually himself is the light, but something he created. He said, let there be light. Now, light in the Bible can be used a lot of different ways. It can be used as a figure of speech that shows that Christ is the light of men and that he shows us the way of salvation. 
And the word of God also talks about walking in the light. But that's not really what we're talking about here in Genesis 1. Not at all. This light was a physical light. This was not God. But it was also not the light of the sun or the stars because they wouldn't be created until day four. Now, a good argument, a very good argument can be made that even though this light is not God, it could be the light of his glory. A very good argument could be made for that. Not that his glory was created, mind you, on day one, just that this was the light that was manifested until God created the sun and the moon. It's very possible. Or it could be some other light created by God for a short period of time. Certainly, we can think of other examples in the Bible, like the star that guided the wise men to Jesus in Matthew 2. And Revelation 22, 5 comes to mind. Chapter 21 of Revelation tells us first, it says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. And then what do we read? In chapter 22, verse 5, there shall be no light there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So in my mind, as I look at Genesis 1, and here's how I want you to think about this, my mind goes back to the first audience of Genesis. The people of Israel had seen where they were in captivity, that with the ninth plague upon the Egyptians, the Israelites had light. And even though the Egyptians worshipped the sun god, the S-U-N god, the sun god in the sky, they were still, remember from the text, they were left in darkness. Exodus 10 tells us, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. That's dark. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt. Three days they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. That's pretty cool. God was the light of Israel, and it was his light that led them through the wilderness. We read that in Exodus 13. Where it says, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. See, the people of Israel understood when Genesis is recorded that God himself is light. And so they didn't have a big problem with this. God is about to define in Genesis 1 what a day for us is. Let's pick it up again in verse 4. It says, And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, it is often said that a day in Genesis does not mean 24 hours. It's said all the time. Hebrew is not that much different from English. It really isn't. It's actually a beautiful language because we use a whole bunch of different meanings for the word day. We do this all the time. Let me give you some examples. I drove all day to get to grandma's house. I drove day just meaning the roughly the daylight hours. I will go to grandma's house in three days. What do I mean? Now I'm talking about three literal 24-hour periods. In grandma's day, the whole family would come to her house, meaning back in grandma's time. 
back in grandma's time. Or even one day I will go to grandma's house. Future. In the future, I'm going to go to grandma's. When I say any of those sentences, you're not mind blown. You're not trying to struggle to figure out what I'm talking about with the word day. You understand what I mean, and it's obvious. You don't even have to think about it. Why? Because of the context. Now, here's why this is so important. Let me explain it to you. Genesis 2.4, let's look at it. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, notice the word day, Hebrew word yom. Same word for day as back in Genesis 1. But here we recognize that Moses used the word day to refer to a period of time around God's creation. In other words, what is this? This is back in grandma's day back in grandma's day, or here in Genesis, back in the creation week, in the creation week. And this does not mean that Genesis 1 has to be using the word day exactly the same as Genesis 2-4. Genesis 1 is Moses using the Hebrew word day, referring to normal, ordinary days. And it's obvious from the text because the text specifically says evening and morning, obviously referring to a typical day. And let me give you three reasons we know this to be true. Three reasons that we know this is a literal day. First, the Hebrew grammar demands it. The Hebrew grammar demands it. Whenever the word day in Hebrew is combined with an ordinal number. Now, what is an ordinal number? First, second, third, fourth. Whenever day in Hebrew is with an ordinal number or whenever it is joined to words evening and morning, the meaning is always an ordinary night and day. We have 410 times outside of Genesis 1 where the scripture says day with a number referring to a normal length day. And we have 23 times outside of Genesis 1 where it says evening plus morning with the word day where it refers to a normal length day. Second, as we mentioned last week, God uses the creation week as a pattern for the Sabbath rest. I encourage you to look at Exodus 20, verse 11. And third, Hebrew's not that dumb, guys. It has words that mean really long periods of time. And guess what? God didn't have Moses use those words saying really long periods of time because that's not what he meant. If you teach a child to read, I don't care what kid it is. If you teach a child to read and then have them read Genesis chapter one, they'll have no problem with the meaning. They're going to look at the word day and say, I got it. Six days. I got it. They were not going to insert a gap. They're not going to be sitting there making cool charts and putting gaps in there. They're not going to do it. They're not going to put day age theories or periods of time into it. Because you have taught, here it comes, that the child understands that words have meaning. But it's only when we bring in evolutionary thought into the Bible that we have a problem. And if God didn't mean literal days in Genesis, then I think God misled people for thousands of years. Because this is precisely how God's people understood it which is what I believe in God intended. Just looking at the wording, God said the light was good. And to reinforce the idea, the very idea that the normal 24-hour light cycle had begun, God separated out light from darkness. Now, this is God's objective standard here 
The light was good according to who? God. According to God. Now notice carefully, we have this day-night cycle. What do you need in order to have a day-night cycle? What do you need to have? Basic elements here. All you need to have, well, you need to have light and you need to have a rotating earth. You need to have an earth that's spinning, right? And you need light shining from one direction. Well, the earth was already rotating on day one. God called the light day and he called the darkness night. And why do you name something? You name something because you have the right to name it. God had the right to name the light and he had the right to name the darkness because he alone had the authority to. He created it. He gets to name it. And then notice how verse five ends. Evening and morning were the first day, not morning and then evening, evening and morning. And this is probably the reason the Hebrew people started the day at sunset because darkness was there first in God's created order, then the light. But there's something subtle in the Hebrew and most of the English translations end verse five by saying this was the first day. But I want you to track this through with me. In order for something to be first, there has to be a, a second and a third and a fourth. But there wasn't a second yet. There wasn't a third yet. There was only just one day. And so speaking of creation, the Hebrew text does not say first day. It says day one. Day one. That's beautiful. And that's why the New American Standard translation actually translate it as one day. One day. See, God is defining for us in the Bible because he knew it would come under attack what a day is. Darkness, night, and light, day. One rotation of the earth equals one day. And so the simple understanding is that all of creation was spoken into existence in the time it took for the earth to rotate just six times. Why? Why? Because God knew his word would come under attack. And because within one verse, God had Moses use the word day with two different meanings. See, he called the light day, day as opposed to the dark. And this is, I drove all day to get to grandma's house. And then the second use was night and day equals a period of time that we understand as a day or one rotation of the earth. This is the end of day one of creation. And the author of Genesis ended each day of creation with this phrase. It's like he couldn't be more specific. He ended each phrase with the evening and morning were the first day, verse 5. The evening and morning were the second day, verse 8. The evening and the morning were the third day, verse 13. See, he does that all throughout Genesis 1 because he was trying to guard as much as possible anyone reading this and taking away the idea that somehow this was not literal days. Because he had to, and not just for us. Because the pagan nations of old, they all believed in evolution. They all did. Where there was some vast eon of time before any man developed from the primeval slime. Evolution, see, I'm telling you, is an old lie. It's not new. And Genesis was actually written to stand against it. And so after day one, the earth was no longer without form, but it was still empty. And there was no man, there was no animals, no vegetation. And Psalm 115, verse 16 teaches us this. It says, the heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. But at this stage of creation, it has not yet been given to men. I'd like you guys to meet Sarah Salviander, 
Who is she? Well, she's a research scientist in the field of astrophysics. She was a lifelong atheist. But as an undergraduate student in physics, she started looking at some of the science. She started looking at the evidence. And here's what she came to. She came to a conclusion that the universe is too detailed and too organized to be an accident. Now, her parents were socialists. They were atheists. And in her testimony, she wrote this. She said, it's amazing that for the first 25 years of my life, I met only three people who identified as a Christian. And just as a side note, that's why it's so important, Christians, to maintain your witness for Christ. Then she said she began to focus on her physics and math studies. And for the first time in her life, she met Christians. And she was kind of amazed because they were excited. They were happy. They were joyful. They were content in their lives. They had joy. And she adds to it. And they were smart, too. Then she found out her physics professor was a Christian. And little by little, God began chipping away at her. And then Sarah joined a group that was researching evidence for the Big Bang. And that was a turning point for her in conversion. She said, I started to sense an underlying order of the universe without knowing it. I was awaking to what Psalm 19 tells us so clearly. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Now, she's still at this point in her faith, believes in an old earth, but I believe God's not done working on her yet. How about this person? This is Alan Sandage. Anybody know who he was? He's often referred to as the most influential astronomer of the 20th century. Most influential astronomer of the 20th century. For six decades, he played a key role in our understanding of the universe. Prior to his death in 2010, at the age of 84, Sandage also came to faith in Christ. See, early in his career, he was convinced that science, without reference to a creator, could explain everything in the universe. But as his knowledge of the universe began to increase, his beliefs were challenged. He used to tell the story of being at a conference and just he was struck by the intricacies of the human body, not even to mention the universe. And then he started to question if life could really have happened by chance. So at the age of 50, he said a door opened and I gradually went through it with a different view of things. And he eventually embraced faith in Jesus Christ. Now, he continued to do research, and he said he never saw, as he continued to do research, a conflict between his faith and science. And he argued it was his science that drove him to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. Meet Michael Egnor. He's a leading brain surgeon, still active. He was raised an agnostic. He didn't believe the Bible because he said, as a science major in college, you can see how this goes, I was steeped in Darwinian evolution, which seemed to demonstrate that life could be explained perfectly well by material mechanisms alone. There was no reason to invoke God. His studies also covered Freud, whose theories persuaded him that, quote, religion is wish fulfillment. And over the years, he rose to the top of his field. He was a professor, a vice president of neurosurgery at Stony Brook University, an award-winning brain surgeon. But in his research of the brain, as he's researching the human brain, it took a very surprising turn. He realized that studying the cranial system, he was studying 
it was looking like it was a very well-designed gadget, that the filter that the human brain has that protects the very delicate capillaries from the pulsing force of the heartbeat is like a finely tuned mechanism, much like the vibration dampers widely used in engineering today. He said this, most of what he needed to know was not in the biology textbooks. It was in the engineering textbooks where there was a designer. Eventually he realized that all biological research operates on the presumption of a design. This led him to faith in the designer and then faith in Christ as the designer of the human flesh. James Clerk Maxwell, most think he was the third greatest physicist of all time, behind only Newton and Einstein. Maxwell was a very devout Christian, very devout Christian, who wrote often about his faith. And he said in one letter, he said, I think Christians whose minds are scientific are bound to study science that their view of the glory of God may be as extensive as their being is capable he believed in a creator who created an ordered universe and created us to inhabit it and explore it. Who's this? Astronomer Nicholas Copernicus in the 16th century. He said, who could live in close contact with the most consummate order and the divine wisdom and not feel drawn to the loftiest aspirations? Who could not adore the architect of all these things? Johannes Kepler, 17th century, one of history's greatest astronomers. He said, my Lord and my creator, I would like to proclaim the magnificence of your works to men to the extent that my limited intelligence can understand. Isaac Newton, you heard of him, 18th century, founder of classic theoretical physics. He said, the admirable arrangement and harmony of the universe could only have come from the plan of an omniscient and omnipotent being. Prolific inventor Thomas Edison, my utmost respect and admiration to all the engineers, especially the greatest of them, all God. Albert Einstein, founder of modern physics. He said, everyone who is seriously committed to the cultivation of science becomes convinced, becomes convinced that in all the laws of the universe is manifest a spirit vastly superior to man and to which we with our powers must feel humble. Men who understand the science and saw that it pointed to a creator. It's the details in creation that point us to God. 93 million miles from the blistering surface of the sun hangs this beautiful ball that we live on, hangs Earth. This rotating sphere, perfectly suspended in space, just sitting there, perfectly suspended in space. It's the ultimate creation from an infinite mind, an unbelievable, intricate, complex design. A supernatural testimony sitting right there. You walk on it every day. An irrefutable sign that there is a God. The size, the position, and the angle of the earth, it's a scientific phenomenon. Because to be a few degrees closer to the sun, well, that's not good. We'll disintegrate. A few degrees further, and we'll freeze. 
And the axis of the earth is tilted at a perfect, perfect 23 degree angle. That's not a mistake. That's not an accident. It allows equal distribution of the rays of the sun, making it possible for the food chain to exist. Or just even take, for example, the simple combination of nitrogen and oxygen in the atmosphere that we breathe every single day. It just happens to be the exact mix that life needs to prosper. It doesn't happen on any other planet that way. Nowhere. See, the Bible says that the invisible things of God are clearly seen through his creation. And to believe this is not hard, not if you have faith. If there's a design, then there's a designer. If there's a plan, there's a planner. If there's a miracle, there is a God. There is hope and there's light. And I know, Christians, there is a God. You remember the words of David in Psalm 19? We keep repeating them. Let me read them again. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Do you know what the very next verse says? The very next verse says that the heavens reveal knowledge. The heavens, creation, are meant to reveal God's glory to us. And the stars, the sun, and the moon above are like heavenly evangelists, if you will, declaring the very glory of God. See, God designed it. He created it. But to believe evolution is the wedge that tries to undermine the foundation of our faith. Because when the fool says there is no God, he rejects the truth of God that is painted on God's very creation. The atheistic beliefs have never given answers to where we came from. They can't. They've never given those answers. They've never been able to calm a troubled mind or wipe away a tear because it is God who created heaven and earth. It is God who put the stars into space. It is God who breathed into a handful of dirt, creating a man. And it is God who sent his only begotten son to the cross to pay for my sins. There are answers to the questions. And Christians, there's hope found in the Creator. There is a God. There is hope in the light of Jesus Christ. So Christians, be strengthened in knowing His design, knowing His love, His care, and His plan for you. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.